verses 3 through 6. And there's a few reasons. I, as my dad asked me a couple of weeks ago if I would like to preach, I pondered what would I preach about here. One of the things that has struck me it being in California and just being around in general and being in the seminary circles and seeing what's going on out there is the, the lack of clarity in the gospel. And I thought, you know, why not just preach about the gospel for a Sunday? That's a good way to start off a new year. Get f- refreshed about the gospel of Jesus Christ to start this year off. And it's always good to have a reminder of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's what I will speak on from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. So if you would look again at 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 3, I'm reading out of the ESV. So maybe a little bit different from what you're used to, but 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. Verse 6, for God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Might you give us understanding of this passage, and might we, uh, Lord, if anyone is here who does not know you, might they turn from their sin and confess you as their Lord. And for those of us who are believers, just be reminded of the great mercy that you have given to us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. What Paul has been doing so far in the book of 2 Corinthians is defending his ministry. My father keeps me up to date with what he's preaching about. So very, uh, very many years, I think it's been, what, three, four years worth of 2 Corinthians teaching. So you should be pretty familiar with what's going on in the book of 2 Corinthians. He's been defending his ministry. If you would turn uh, back to chapter 1 and just kind of flip with me for a few minutes. He starts off uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 after his introduction and talking about the sufferings uh, that we have and the the types of grief. Then he says in verse 12, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, 2 Corinthians 1.12, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. That's we, the missionaries. Not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. Then you get to verse 16 and following. He defends the fact that he had promised the Corinthians he would go there, told them that he would end up at the Corinthian church, and he just couldn't do it. He got uh, sidetracked. Verse 16, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have, have you send me on my way to Judea. And this is what he wanted to do, but he just could not do it. It was not possible for him to get back to the Corinthian church. And so he defends himself throughout chapter 1, saying why he couldn't do that. And if you look at uh, chapter 2, and maybe look at some of the titles in your Bibles, and you look at what's going on in chapter 2, he's defending, really, his ministry of preaching. Apparently, there were people who had come into the Corinthian church And we're falsely accusing Paul of many things. And one of them was that his preaching is ineffective. He's boring. He preaches something that nobody's going to listen to. And chapter 2 is a lot of time is spent defending that. Look at verse 17. For we 
are not, talking about him and the missionaries, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. He was not peddling the message, making it easier or more palatable for those who were listening to understand. My daughter, I don't give her a whole banana. I smush it so she can eat it. And Paul's saying, I'm not smushing the message to make it more palatable. I'm preaching the word. And that's what chapter 2 is all about. So he goes in verse 4, and he said, uh, chapter 3, excuse me, verses 1 through 4. And he says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? He's saying, do, do I have to get a letter of recommendation to prove my ministry to you, Corinthians? Could you imagine that? He had led them to the Lord. And now he's saying, do I have to bring a letter of commendation to, to show that I'm a true minister of the word of God? Is that what I have to do? Verse 2, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation. The fact that you're believers, that's my proof. Written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Verse 3, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts, such as this confidence that we have through Christ toward God. So we do not need to bring you letters of recommendation or commendation because you're saved, and that you're saved, and I was the one who led you to the Lord, shows that my ministry is good, true, faithful. And so what he does in verses 7 through the rest of the end of chapter uh, three is he just goes off about the spirit of Christ and the ministry of the new covenant that he is partaking of versus the ministry of the Old Testament under Moses. And he culminates in verse 18, and we all, he says, with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transferred into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. And he comes back in chapter four and starts defending his ministry again. So he's been defending his ministry to the Corinthians. First, why didn't we show up at your church? Here's why we didn't show up at your church. Second, this is the way we preach. We preach the gospel. We don't change it. We don't make it more palatable. We preach the word of God. Now he comes back in chapter 4, and again, he's going to show that the message that they preach is the correct message that they should always be preaching. And that's what he does in chapter 4. Verse 1, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Verse 2, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And he says, listen, I, I can say that all we've been doing is preaching the word of God. We are not, according to verse 2, acting in ways that are underhanded. We're not looking to get money even for our messages, which was common during this time. No, we're just preaching the gospel, and we're leaving it up to the Lord. And that brings us to where we are today in chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. And I just want to make two observations about this text. Two observations. The first one is simply this. The awful inability of man. The awful inability of man. And you see that in verses 3 down to verse 5, really. The awful inability of man. Remember they're saying, Paul, your message is ineffective. 
You preach and people sleep. You preach and there's not this great revival that happens. You are a bad preacher. And so he comes and he says in chapter 3, you know what? And even if, he concedes this to them, even if our gospel is veiled, even if people don't understand our message, that's what he's saying. The concept of veiled there is covered, hidden, literally, is what the word means, something that's put under a rock and kept away so you can't see it. Even if our gospel is hidden, he's conceding the fact that what they're saying is true. It is hidden. You're right. It is hidden. But to whom is it hidden? Even if our gospel, verse 3, is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. Here's where you see the awful inability of man. You're right. The gospel message is hidden. It is veiled. Just like, as he said in chapter 3, Moses' face had to be veiled or hidden because of the glory that's shown from his face. He says, yes, my message, the gospel, is veiled. It is hidden. But it's hidden from those, he says in verse uh, 3 there, those who are perishing. Perishing. Now, what's the, the people who are perishing? It's actually a favorite word of Paul to the Corinthians. He uses it numerous times. Uh, dying. It's translated destroyed a little bit later in the book. And it's those, simply put, how he uses the word perishing, are those who are doomed for eternal judgment in hell. The King James says the lost. Some of you might have that. That's the point. Those who are unbelievers. And the gospel is hidden from those who are unbelievers. Perishing. The unsaved world cannot see the truths of the gospel. This is the awful inability of man. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, just to give you a couple verses. Verse 14, you see this concept throughout Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. 1 Corinthians 1, 18, The word of the cross is to those who are perishing, same, same concept there, those who are eternally going to face the wrath of God. It, it, it is to them who are perishing foolishness. The word of a cross is foolishness. When I was in California, I, I found my way back at Sears. I worked at Sears again. I didn't want to, but that was the Lord's plan. And I was a Sears appliance salesman. And if any of you know me, I am not a good salesman. <laughs> so it was the Lord's grace that I made any sales. But it just so happened that where I was working, there were a few atheists that I would work with. And we would have fun conversations all the time. Most of my time was spent standing around waiting for people to come. Most of their time was spent standing around waiting for people to come. Put those two together, you have a bunch of people waiting around for people to come during the economic crisis, okay? And so we were sitting there, and we would talk all the time. And I remember I shared the gospel with one of them who was agnostic atheist, meaning he, knows there, he doesn't know if there's no God, but he's pretty sure. That's the way to think of it. 
And so we talked for a while about it, gave him the whole gospel message. At the end of it, he said, that is just stupid. God dying. You ever thought about that? God dying. That is stupid. I said, you're foolish. <laughs> That's what the Bible calls you. It's foolishness to you. I understand that. That's okay. Listen, the gospel, 1 Corinthians chapter 118, the word of the cross to those who are perishing is foolishness. Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's because all unbelievers are dead in their trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians chapter 2. Look at just a few verses earlier, because Paul already talked about this. A few, few chapters, sorry. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. And just think about the world for a minute and the culture we live in. I know you think California is full of fruits and nuts. They think you're all crazy over here. That's just the way it is. We're all crazy, okay? But the culture we live in is not much different. Now think about the culture as you read these verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and I want you to look at verse 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God. Now among whom? Among those who are being saved. And among those who are perishing, to the one, a fragrance from death to death. Now, we're aroma to everybody in this world. When we're in this group, we're aroma of life to life. You see that in verse 16. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. But out in the world, we are an aroma of death to death. Why? Because is not our gospel judging? Is it not condemning? We are an aroma of death to them. And you see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that even, verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. And there could be, I don't know, I haven't been here in a while, there are some faces I don't know, but there's a lot of familiar faces. There could be people in this room where the gospel is veiled to you. I know there is in my church. We are a church of about 250 and I guarantee that there are people in my church that are veiled to the gospel. Coming to church, they think, is salvation. Showing up once a week is salvation. And, and for usually the people that are veiled to the gospel, they look at somebody who's dedicated to Christ, and it doesn't make sense. And that's because it doesn't. Now, there's two reasons he gives us for the awful inability of man, and that's found in verses 4 and 5. The first one is in verse 4, and that's the work of the adversary. The work of the adversary. The reason that there is an awful inability of man in relationship to the gospel is first because of the work of the adversary. Look at verse 4. In their case, in whose case? Well, that would be the case of those who are perishing. In their case... The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The reason that the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing first is because of the work of the adversary. He labels him, if you look at verse 4, in their case, the God of this world. In Greek, there's a few different words that you can use for world. In, in this case, this word has the idea of age, has a sense of time versus the globe. 
He's not talking about the specific globe, but he's talking more about the age, the God of this time versus the God of the time to come, which will be Jesus Christ when he rules and reigns on the earth. But for now, the God of this world is whom? It's Satan. It's Satan. He's also called uh, the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians. He's also called the ruler of this world by Jesus in John chapter 12. John chapter 14, verse 30. John chapter 16, 11. So he is the God of this world. And look what he's doing. He has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. He's actively working against the gospel. Do you see that? Satan's just not sitting back. He's very active, making sure that those who are unbelievers will not see the gospel. Verse 4, specifically, he says he has blinded the minds. This is a favorite word of Paul. You'll find this word throughout all of Paul's writings. And this word has the concept of the will, the, the, the capacity of man to respond to spiritual things. He's blinding the will of men. He's blinding this capacity to see the, the gospel. And he's active in doing it. This is a horrible situation right here, which most of this world is in. And the work of the adversary is that he is actively blinding their minds. And I could think of numerous ways that he's involved in blinding people's minds, but probably the greatest that you can think of, I hope, is that he is a liar. He's been a liar from the beginning. He's out there giving false religion. He's out there doing anything he can to keep people from seeing the gospel. But I want you to see this. This is, this is the coolest phrase in all of 2 Corinthians, in my opinion, is what you see here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5. Uh, verse 4, excuse me. What is he trying to keep them from, see, from seeing? He says he has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Why? Well, here's why. To keep them from seeing this long phrase. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Now, a lot of you probably don't know Greek, but you really do. It's, it's the same as English. Okay, In the English it says... The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Guess what it says in the Greek? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. How do we understand that? What is he trying to keep them from seeing? Think about this word. Mr. Glines will like this. I think the word of has 81 pages in the Oxford Dictionary. Okay? Word of. You don't think above like that. 81 pages. Uh, for instance, a bucket of metal. What am I saying? It could be a bucket made of metal, or it could be a bucket full of metal, right? That's a bucket of metal. It's the same thing in Greek. There's 36 ways to understand this. The light of the gospel, he says in verse 4, of the glory of Christ. What's the emphasis there? What's he trying to show us? Well, I'm not going to go through all 36 opportunities that it could be. I'll just give you what I think it is. I think the emphasis of this is very interesting. He says, in my opinion, seeing the light which emanates from the gospel, which is Christ's glory. Let me repeat that. He does not want people to see the light that comes from the gospel, and that light is this, Christ's glory. That's what Satan is trying to blind people about. You see, the gospel is not about heaven. The gospel is not about us. The gospel 
is about the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ. That's why I think he says in verse 4 there, the light which shines from the gospel, which is the glory of Christ. Satan knows that if you will see the glory of Christ in the gospel, you will turn and follow it. And he does not want you to see that. I'm afraid, in my understanding of just American churches and being around churches here, Midwest, South, California of all places, all these places, my concern is the glory of Christ is completely stripped out of the gospel. We treat it as if it's a dark room and we light a candle. Imagine pitch black in here and you light a candle. That would be bright. You would see the light, right? The problem is, is the glory of Christ in the gospel is more like a sun coming into this room when it's completely black. It's the blazing center of the gospel. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. And, and Satan knows this. Because if you see the glory of Christ in the gospel, you will turn and give everything to it. If you really see the glory of Christ, you'll forsake it all. And in evangelicalism today, in American Christianity, we don't really present the gospel that way. Our typical presentation of the gospel is, do you want to go to heaven? Yes. Well, God's holy, and you're a sinner. And if you want to be in heaven, you've got to repent of your sin and turn to God. And, and the way you can do that is, that Jesus Christ came so you could go to heaven, and he died on the cross so you could go to heaven, and if you just accept his payment, you, you'll go to heaven. And that's true, is it not? That's, a, that's good, but that's, that's just this much of it. That's just this much of it. Because the gospel is about Jesus Christ. It's not about heaven. If I ask everyone in this room, how many here don't want to go to heaven. Yeah. Nobody put their hand up. I'm not surprised. If I went outside, down to the loop, right in front of the cinema, and I said, how many here, honestly now, so that cuts out, you know, all the immature people. I, if you really sit down and think about it, how many here want to go to hell? Nobody's going to do that. The problem is not that they don't want to go to heaven. The problem is that they don't want to accept the Lord and have him be their Lord to get to heaven. That's the problem. That's the problem. They don't want to, it's not that they don't want to embrace heaven. They just don't want to embrace the Savior to heaven. And that's why I think Paul, seven times in his writing, Paul uses this phrase, the gospel of Christ, because it's the gospel of which is Christ. I mean, when you embrace the gospel, you embrace Christ. You embrace him. I know that you've heard this quote before, but it's so appropriate uh, because I know my dad told me he was going to use it. But there's a quote by John Piper in his book, God is the Gospel. And I'm telling you, if you've never read God is the Gospel, you have to read God is the Gospel. I've read a lot of John Piper books, most of them, whatever. This one, very good. Right on the money. You got to read this. God is the gospel. Write that down. God is the gospel. There's your New Year's resolution. Read God is the gospel. In this, he says this, 
this, uh, on page 15, he asked this question. If you could have heaven, and you might have heard this already, with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw. I mean, think about that. If you could have a place with no sickness, that's good, check, okay? With all the friends you ever had on earth, true friends, that's good, check, okay? And all the food you ever liked, I like food, check. And all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, soccer, good, check, okay? And all the natural beauties you ever saw, Yosemite, check, okay? And no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? If you could have all the byproducts of heaven, no tears, great food, good friends, good fellowship, good voices to sing with. If we could have all these and there was no Christ, would you be happy in heaven? A few pages later, and I think he's right, he says, and people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. Because the gospel's not about heaven. The gospel's about the light of the gospel, which is the glory of Christ. And what does that mean, that it's the glory of Christ? Think about this for a minute. Genesis chapter 3, what happens? The fall, one sin, one sin, and this is what you get. One sin, look around you. Sickness, disease, all of this because of one sin. And not only that, an eternity spent in the punishment of God. One sin. That's a dark situation. Have you ever sinned once? We all have. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So now we have one sin, and because of one sin, we have this place, which is horrible if you look around. I, it's amazing. Flip on the news. You'll be very encouraged. One sin. One sin. Now multiply that times six point whatever billion every day. That's a lot of sin. And that's a lot of problems. And that's a lot of punishment. And that's right now. One sin. Dark situation. But God sent his only son. Well, we were still sinners. That's when God sent his son that we might live through him. You see, we are in this dark place needing something, and Jesus Christ came to the earth, who is God, took on flesh, humbled himself, according to Philippians chapter 2, became a man, took on flesh, our infirmities, and was nailed to a cross for our sins. Now, one of your sins, eternity. Now think of all of your sins, just you, on one person. Jesus Christ, and he accomplished in three hours facing the wrath of God what we need in eternity to pay. That's the glory of Christ in the gospel so that we, just as he rose from the dead, according to 1 Corinthians 15, so shall we in newness of life in a new glorified life. That is the gospel. It's all about Jesus Christ. And now all we need to do is turn, believe it, of our sins.
But see, the glory of Christ is, is completely what the gospel is about. You look at chapter 4, he says, uh, verse 4, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, and then he says, who is the image of God. That is, he makes seen what can't be seen. No one sees God, but Christ reveals him. First Corinthians, uh, excuse me, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, he's the image of the invisible God. You ever thought about that phrase for a second? The image of the invisible God. Have you ever seen something that's invisible? He makes known that which is invisible. He's the image of the invisible. He, we see him, we see God, right? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, he's the radiance of his glory and exact representation of his nature. And here's the thing. If Satan knew that you could see this, Satan, man, if Satan had this moment where he said, okay, this person's going to see the gospel of Christ, he knows you will drop everything and go after it. And that's why the work of the adversary in verse 4 is all about blinding the minds of the unbelieving world. He's scared to death of the fact that you might see that or the world might see that. He's scared to death. It's the work of the adversary. Secondly, verse 5, the other reason there's the awful inability of man is not only the work of the adversary, but also uh, the word of the apostles. That's what verse 5 is about. Four, anytime you see the word four in your Bible, underline it and think reason. Most of the time it means reason. Four, reason. What we proclaim is not ourselves. We don't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus Christ. The reason that man is completely unable is not only because of the work of the adversary, but the message that we preach. That's what verse, four, verse 5 is all about. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord. We don't peddle the word. We preach him as Lord. We don't preach him as friend. Yes, he is our friend, and he is our comforter, but first he's our Lord, is he not? And that's what we preach him as, Jesus Christ as master. It's a better way to think of it. And not only that, we preach ourselves as your servants for Jesus Christ's sake. It, it amazes me that people don't present Jesus as needing to be Lord. Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that's Jesus Christ. Who made him? God has made him. Both Lord, Master, and Christ, Messiah. Christ just means Messiah. It's not his middle name. Or last name, I guess, Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Christ means Messiah, anointed one. He is made him Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified and that's what drove paul and that's what drove his companions we preach jesus christ as lord and then he says with ourselves as your servants we, all, we not only preach him as lord but we're just simply here as your slaves we're here as your ministers and that's all that preachers should be as ministers that's all that pastors should be that's all your elders should be ministers but we proclaim jesus christ as lord not us him as lord So read, read verse 3 again. If our gospel is veiled, it is only veiled to those who are preached, perishing. Reason 1, work of the adversary. Reason 2, for what we proclaim, you could skip verse 4 and just go to straight to verse 5 and we get the same concept. It's veiled only to those who are perishing for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants. That's a bad situation. It's a bad situation. Man is unable. We want 
heaven, but we don't want the Savior. Work of the adversary, word of the apostles. But look at verse 6. I don't want you all going depressed home today. Look at verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You have the awful inability of man, but I want you to see this. Secondly, you have the astonishing intervention of God. That's what verse 6 is about, the astonishing intervention of God. You know, think of the gospel this way. I really enjoy looking at 3D pictures. You ever see those? They're usually on the back of cereal boxes or other things like that. Um, what is it? Golden grams. Golden grams. Get a box of golden grams. They still have them on there. On the back of the golden grams, they've got this weird image, and it doesn't look like anything. And you have to get really close, cross your eyes, and pull back, and you see a skateboarder. That's your hint, okay, for those of you that have golden grams. And you see the skateboarder. I remember in college, I had a friend that could not, they just could not get those. They'd see those 3D images, and you just, you had to try everything to get them to see, okay, hold it really close, count to 10, okay, keep looking at the image as you pull it away. I can't see it. They just could not see it. And that's the problem with this world. They just can't see the gospel. I needed to get her some type of glasses so she could see those things. See, this is where God comes in. He gives the glasses. That's what verse 6 is about. He comes in and he gives the glasses. For God. Here you see the awesome intervention of God. You had the awful inability of man, but now you see the awesome intervention of God. For God who said, now what do you think of when you hear this? Let light shine out of darkness. Don't you think of Genesis 3? The power of God in creation. I would love to see someone in this room. We shut all the windows, shut all the doors, let it be completely dark. I'd love to see someone create light. Let there be light, and there's light. This is impossible. But with God, it is not impossible. This same power that creates light out of darkness, catch this, that same power intervenes in verse 6. The power of God in creation is just as powerful as the power of God in regeneration, making a new life. Verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The creative power of God is as powerful as the regenerative, regenerating power of God. That's what verse 6 is all about. God intervenes in this situation. Now you look at this phrase in verse 6. He says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown. Now look what he's shown in our hearts. He has shown in our hearts, and it, all the trans, well, maybe not all the translations, most of the translations you have out there, including mine, says to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This could be understood two different ways. First, it could be this. We could look at this verse and think that God is shining in our hearts as believers so that we give the light. Do you see that? In verse 6, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. That would be evangelism. 
We, we give the light. How do we give the light? By how we act. We walk in newness of life and we proclaim the gospel. It could be that. I don't think it is. Because the word give there is not in the original. It actually reads like this. He has shown in our hearts the light of the gospel, or the night light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And what I think he's saying is this. He who, 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 who created light out of darkness created light in darkness, you. He brought the gospel, verse 6. He took the gospel, has shown in our hearts so that we could see, there's a way to think of it, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, enabled us to see the light of the gospel. That's what that's saying in verse 6. We are in a problem, awfully incapable. <laughs> but we have an astonishing intervening God who is capable, who not only created light, but also creates re regeneration. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us, I love this translation, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Turn with me to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. I want you to see this. Verse 27. A very, very popular passage. Jesus looked at them and said, Mark chapter 10, verse 27, With man it is impossible but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Now I want you to look at a few verses earlier. What is he talking about in the context? Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciple, how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? Verse 24, the disciples were amazed at his words, but, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And the answer is, with God, all things are possible. Disciples, that's the right question. They, for once, they asked the right question in verse 26. Who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible. He's awfully unable to do it. But with God, all things are possible. All things are possible, and therefore, people can enter the kingdom of heaven. That's in the parentheses. That's the white spaces. Because that's the conclusion he wants you to make. I, uh, I enjoy studying the Great Awakenings. It's one of my hobby horses. I have a lot of books about the Great Awakenings. If you ever want to get me a book, you can get me one by Ian Murray. He's my favorite writer. I read everything by this guy. And he, he spends a lot of time studying the Great Awakenings. And if you haven't studied the Great Awakening, it's, it's quite amazing what happened, especially uh, during the beginning of the Second Great Awakening. Uh, this happened in 1790 to about 1840. All of a sudden, people were just getting saved. I mean, you had whole congregations getting saved. Can you imagine that as a preacher after 30 years? <laughs> All of a sudden, your whole congregation gets saved. 
oops, I did something wrong. Uh, that's what I would think. But, but Ian Murray sits there and he tries to think about this. What, what all of a sudden happened that created all these revivals in America? And so he asks this question in his book, Revival and Revivalism. He says, what special means were used to promote these revivals? I, what did these ministers do to promote revivals? Was it the music? Was it the altar call? They called it the mourner's bench back then. What was it that they did to cause these revivals? And, I, and I, if I were to go and ask all the crusaders today, it would be interesting to see what they say. But his conclusion is this. The answer is that there was none. There was no special means. But in the case of the Second Great Awakening, he, he later says, nearly all the preachers prominent at the outset had already been laboring for many years. You had a preacher in Kentucky who had been preaching there for 20 years. Gets up Sunday morning, cup of coffee, looks at a sermon, just continuing where he was last week. Gets up at the pulpit, preaches, and a revival breaks out. Nothing was different. Nothing changed. The message stayed the same. The difference was the Spirit of God worked. The Spirit of God worked. You had an astonishing intervention of God in America in the late 1700s. The message stayed the same. The work of God happened. You had people praying, and the Spirit of God moved. So, you have in 2 Corinthians 4 the awful inability of man, but then you have the uh, astonishing intervention of God. Well, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Well, if you're a believer, start singing. <laughs> Sing. You, you proclaim Jesus says, Lord, right, when you were saved, live like it. Be excited to be a Christian. I can't stand people that hate being Christians. I'm like, why be a Christian? How can you, how can you not be happy? if you're? And I'm not a normally joyful person. I'm just a normal guy, I think. But be, be excited. This is you right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You were completely incapable and God intervened and you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So be rejoicing over that. Colossians 1.3, he, he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now, second thing, preach Christ. Just get the message. Get the message out there. Don't worry about the outcome. You work on the message. Get the message of the gospel, the glory of Christ, out to this neighboring community. To those that you work with. A few weeks ago, I was sitting at a table with a bunch of pastors in Santa Clarita, California. Santa Clarita is probably about, it's getting close to about 300,000 people in this valley, a bunch of different towns, pretty large, like everything else out there. And um, we're sitting down, and it's a missions table where we sit down as pastors and talk about ways that we can be better at sending out missionaries and having same missionaries and all that. And uh, the leader, who is a, a professor at the Master's College, said, one thing I'd like to see is how we can effectively reach our own community. And they all talked about different ways that you can reach the community. And, and I sat there and I thought, the way to reach the community is just to preach the gospel. The problem is not that we're not reaching the community. The problem is we're just not preaching the gospel to those that we know. That's how you reach the community. 
listen, this is what you preach to them. You preach awfully enable, but God intervenes. And let the chips fall where they may. Let the Spirit of God work. But we need to be preaching it. We need to be giving it. That's, a pro- that's exactly what Paul said in Romans 10, 14, right? How should they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how should they believe in him in whom they have not heard? How should they hear without a preacher? We need to be preaching the gospel. Very simple. And for those of you that maybe have not embraced Christ as your Savior and Lord, very simple. Repent and turn to him. Very simple. Repent and turn to him. The glory of heaven is not that you escape hell. The glory of heaven is that you get a savior. And that's what makes it glorious. And that's what makes it worth it. And that's what keeps us going. Right? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Might we, this new year, just uh, be excited about your gospel. Continue to preach it to those out there, Lord. I pray for those who might be in this room who do not know you. Who just walk the walk. Uh, but it's just merely talk to them, Lord. Pray that you would work in their hearts. Pray that you use the Spirit to draw them to yourself, Lord. We just thank you that you are a God who saves, and that is our hope. In Jesus' name, amen.